0: Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Today on the show, I have Professor Joseph Zecobra Manuel. Joseph is a fourth-degree black belt under the legendary Hobson Mora. Joseph is a multiple-time champion and gold medalist, and he's the owner of Cutting Edge Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in Harrison, New Jersey. There's so much gold to mine from beginning to end of this episode. It's a must-listen for hobbyists, competitors, and academy owners alike. It's always an honor to speak to someone with so much experience and mastery in the art. Just a reminder to please give us a five-star review on Apple Music and Spotify and share this podcast with a friend. It really helps us out. Please leave us feedback and suggestions on how we can improve the show and consider become a patron at anchor.fm forward slash forever white belt. Like us on Facebook and TikTok at forever white belt and check us out on Instagram at forever white belt show. Go buy your forever white belt swag at teespring.com forward slash forever dash white dash belt. Finally. If you ever get to beautiful Northern California, please come roll with us at North Bay Jiu-Jitsu in Marin County, just north of San Francisco. they are amazing instructors, and everyone there are great people. Mention the podcast and get two weeks free. And with that, I give you Joseph Zucobra Manuel. Welcome to the show, Joseph. Thank you
1: very much for the invite. I appreciate it.
0: It's such an honor. A fourth degree black belt under the legendary Hobson Mora, correct?
1: That's correct. That's correct.
0: And the academy owner of Cutting Edge BJJ in New Jersey, right?
1: That's right. It's going on what, like eighteen years now.
0: And you've got some uh, fantastic content. That's like one of the ways I've stumbled upon yourself was uh, not only your IG, but you have this little known account apparently on YouTube called Z Cobra, which has like maybe I don't know four or five videos. But the videos are fantastic in the quality, the production, everything of them. You know, yes. can, can you tell me about those? Yeah,
1: man. Interesting, right? The the journey, the jujitsu journey, right? You start off as like a a hobbyist and then, you know, you become a student and then from a student, you become a competitor, or at least you try to compete. Then you become an assistant instructor instructor. And then in my case, an academy owner, Mm -hmm. head instructor. And then once you get into the business, you become the the CEO, the manager, you're doing everything. I was like, they would call me (laughs) sensei-rella because I would clean like Cinderella, you know, like (laughs) school and teaching kids and adults. And then all of a sudden, now you're the marketing guy. You know, like right. trying to get people through the door to word of mouth and then venturing into the into the digital world. And all of a
0: sudden you're the tech guy. <laughs> now I'm like the tech guy.
1: <laughs> and, and now we're talking about these videos that if you had asked me, you know, five years ago, if I would be doing those videos, I'd have been like, what are you talking about? Like, I, I would have no idea what you were talking about. You know, jujitsu is amazing like that. There's so many things that I do today and now that I wouldn't have done if it weren't for jujitsu. Well, at least I say that, but I think a majority of it I wouldn't be doing if it weren't for jujitsu. And um, mm. that's one of them. Uh, video editing, photography, videography. So basically, wow. I wanted to market at the school one time. I want to market birthday parties. I was like, mm-hmm. man, you know, we do birthday parties. They're really awesome. Yeah. And I wanted to try to create another stream of income via birthday parties. That's so funny. I hired someone to come and do photo, like a photo shoot. And he, he did a phenomenal job. I wasn't really too happy with the, the photos because since the guy didn't train jujitsu, he couldn't recognize positions that we recognize. So he was just taking random shots. And I'm like, oh, that could have been an omoplata or that could have been a, a triangle or that could have been an arm lock, but he just didn't capture that. So I was like, damn. What do I do now, man? You know, I paid the guy, whatever. I don't have a problem paying. Of course. But it was like, I used like one photo of the the mm-hmm. whole batch. So I was like, damn, I'm going to have to figure this out. And that's how I got into that aspect of marketing for my school. At first I did some like, you know, just some uh, looking for information on the internet, YouTube, asking people that were photographers. And then finally I was like, you know what? I learned better in a very structured environment. And so I found a photographer that was teaching lessons in Hoboken, New Jersey, world-renowned photographer, Craig Wallace Dale. And uh, I took my initial courses in lighting and composition with with Professor Dale. And so then that easily, the principles are easily translated into video. You know, since then, I've taken some courses also on um, on video editing and things like that. Mm-hmm. But uh yeah just getting in there grabbing the camera and just kind of tapping into the resources that we are inundated with right like I remember sitting and just thinking about all the movies that I've watched and sometimes we watch movies and we don't really know who the director is but then you go back and you look and some of the movies that we've seen these are some of the top top directors and composers for the, of the scores and it's just the best we listen to the best we watch the best movies we watch and we listen to the best music and all that is in here so I it started kind of going into my mind and thinking about that creative aspect of thinking about how I want the shot to look or how not do I want it to look but if I were watching as a spectator how would it make sense to me the angle that will make sense. So this way, when you watch it, when Adolfo's watching it, right? You're sensing something. You probably don't know all the details behind what you're sensing, but it makes so much sense to you. And it's like, man, this looks amazing. Not just the mm-hmm. technique, but just the way you see the technique. And so that was like one of my personal, I don't know, this this creative aspect. I have an illustrative designing background. And when I was a young that man, I did a lot it. of graffiti on the streets. Mm. And so that artistic aspect, you know, I started tapping into that. And so I think the, the videos you saw are only five of the probably the last few that I did, but I have another playlist on the Academy account where there's about 30 videos. It's really amazing. But you know how it is in the social media world, right? If you aren't on flow grappling and you aren't on those big stage events, then you're sure. not relevant. You know, so some people just don't know that stuff is there, but it will blow 90% of the instructional videos out there out the box.
0: <laughs> I was shocked. Your free content, you have a particular vision. I think it it's a very high quality vision is what I know. It resonated with me and I think it would resonate with a lot of people. And when more people stumble upon it, and we're not even talking about Choke Lab yet, but just these little six videos are fantastic. Even the little blue arrows, visual effects that you use to illustrate foot, uh, hand movements or a particular grip. It's these little touches and production quality is obviously fantastic. You got to check this out. We'll include all the links in the show notes, obviously, but you're the all-in-one package. You're this entrepreneur, but it seems like you love learning. You fall into these different pockets and you get really good at these things. But this particular avenue was really interesting to just as well.
1: Yes. Yes. I, you're right. You just said it all right there. I love learning. I'm fascinated with with everything, you know? And mm. um, the idea of being a student, I'm fascinated with that as well. So I was just talking with one of my black belts yesterday, Eric, he was talking about how like, sometimes people ask him, right? He's like a really good competitor and he's younger than I am. And he probably has the opportunity to go to, to some other schools where maybe he might be able to get better training, right? And I, I say that in quotation like right, better.
0: Different training. training, different training. Different Come training, on. yeah.
1: <laughs> and then he was like, listen, there's a reason why I train with professors because this guy is like always the, the, the student, Art ardent student. Like he's just always learning. And mm-hmm. I don't hide anything from my students. You know, when we have events or seminars or workshops, we just had a seminar with uh, Tainan Dalper. You know, I asked him, picked him up like seven o'clock in the morning. We went to the academy. I did like a two hour private lesson with him. Wow. And, um, you know, I told my students, I was like, hey guys, you know, I'm, I'm doing a two hour private lesson. And I had some goals competition that I had coming up and I, I wanted to get his perspective on certain things. And I told the guys, oh man, you know, I come out? I'm like, guys, I did this amazing private lesson with Tainan. And and so, you know, Eric was like, that's what I'm talking about. We have a professor who's a fourth degree black. He could probably sit back here like a lot of instructors do and be like, I don't want you training anywhere else. I don't Mm -hmm. want you learning any other jujitsu. But instead, he's bringing the best jujitsu to us. He's learning from these guys. He's showing us. Mm -hmm. And he's like, that's the kind of person you want to be around, right? You don't Mm -hmm. want to be around the guy that thinks he knows it all. And is like, is not open about learning. Some people, they yeah. don't want to, they're too, you know, oh, I know so much. I can't show them that I learned from this guy. Like, man, I'm willing to learn from anybody, you know?
0: Right. It's a bit of a dead end or like using one tool for everything. Whereas it's uh, inspiring to see someone like you who's seen the growth and and you're seeing new things happen all the time and uh, evolving. I think that's really inspiring for people too. And man, wow, what a great private that you got from tying in and the seminar. How was that? Did your students love it or what?
1: Yeah, yeah. They, they, they really did enjoy it. You know, Um, it's a little tough, right? Like I would say like if there was something that they didn't enjoy, it wasn't because of him. It was because of social media, right? Like on social media, they're used to just scrolling and just seeing so many different things, right? Like a leg mm-hmm. lock here, a foot lock there, an arm lock here, a choke here. Mm-hmm. And then it's like Tainan's presentation was very, very methodical and it was step by step. It was A, mm-hmm. B, C, D, E. And so yeah. I kind of like you can see the physiology of the people like that are not disciplined like that, mm. you know, especially because they're on the phone all the time. They're just a little fidgety. They're like they went, Well, oh, what's next? What's next? No, this is mm. what's next. Pay attention because you're missing the whole thing right here. You're gonna mm-hmm. go too far and you're missing these fine details, you know? So
0: Do you think that's an upper belt perspective that that would resonate more with upper belts who are more interested in those little nuances? Or is that just a personality type or an attention span thing you think?
1: I think it's an attention span thing, you know? Mm. Like you can see it, you know, people are like, just let's just sit down just sit down Mm. and watch and just understand you're not scrolling through this right here you know you're not gonna scroll this and just see what's the next thing you know Mm. and uh, so for me I appreciated that and and I think they enjoyed it but I can see there was a little bit of like I think they thought he was gonna come in and start teaching like you know all this stuff and it wasn't like that you know but what he was teaching was like so necessary for you to digest If you get those fundamental principles and then that's the foundation to everything you're going to build off of that. And then all that other stuff that it seems fancy is just easy work. So it was amazing. It was an amazing experience to see him as such a young person, extremely cerebral, intelligent, organized, goal-oriented, focused, determined. You could just see that it's palpable in his demeanor and I could say a bit wise for his age. One of the things that I took away from the Q&A was like... Someone asked him about goals. And uh, I use a term when I speak about goals, I always talk about them to the students and say, guys, make sure that when you make your goal, they are measurable and attainable. Right? Just two mm-hmm. words that I use. But he used a much simpler word. He was like, realistic. Make sure that your goals are realistic. And so just using that little word there, that was a big deal for me. It, it helped me to really change my mind about certain things. Like I'm kind of very, very strict. I'm always going forward. I don't stop for anybody. Right? There's no middle ground with me. It's, it's all in. And then, so sometimes that part of my character can be an issue for other people mm-hmm. because I'm like, no, it's this way. No, but I want to know it's this way. And then it's like, when he said that, when you make goals, they have to be um, reasonable. I was like, you see, some of the things that I do, though they work for me, is not reasonable for somebody else. Just those, the little words that he said made me go back and think, and I already started changing some things at the Academy. I was like, because I had a certain mindset about how I wanted things to be, but that doesn't make any sense for everyone else. It makes sense for me. He said something about um, competition, right? He was talking about reasonable competition goals. Like, for example, if you're a man and you're a family man and you have children, you have a job and you have a career, it's not reasonable for you to think to yourself, oh, I want to be a world champion in adult division. He said, because the lifestyle you will have to live to do that means that you have to leave your job and your family. He said, you can go the other way, right? Like, let's say you were a competitor, And you were young and you had no kids and you wanted to be a world champion, you can do that. And you could go forward and say, well, I want to have a kid. I want to get a house. I want to get married, so forth and so on. He said, you can go that way. That's reasonable, but you can't go the other way. And so that was one of the issues that I had to resolve and fix myself because I was a person who was already had a career in children and a family and decided to try to become a world champion. And I was on the podium. But not everybody can do that. And so since I was able to do that, I made these strict regimented rules for my competitors at the school. Like, you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to do this, because that's what I did. That's not realistic for them, because one, they're not trying to become world champions, and two... If they did say, hey, professor, I want to be a world champion, they're just never going to be able to do it because they have a completely different lifestyle. They will have completely transformed their lives in order to make that goal come to fruition. Mm -hmm. And so that little phrase, realistic, it just completely changed my paradigm about certain things I was doing. And immediately I changed it. I was like, I want to fix this and I want to go do things in a way that makes is reasonable for my students Mm -hmm. and makes sense. They'll be able to do it to the best of their ability without having me be so strict about it.
0: Well, let's talk about the academies. What's unique about cutting edge Brazilian Jiu Jitsu? Well, originally
1: the name came from the the idea that when we first opened the school in Jersey, I can be wrong, but at that time there weren't any schools open 7 days a week with multiple sessions a day. So that's why we called it Cutting Edge because to try to work on that goal of becoming a world champion, I needed to have access to the academy and training sessions as much as possible, and the only way to do that was to create the facility. That's where that came from. But then also the idea of Cutting Edge was what my vision was for the school that was going to benefit the student. So the first one was if there was another crazy bastard out there like me, who was trying to chase this dream of becoming a world title, then he had the facility and the training center he needed to be able to accomplish those goals. But if you just had someone else who was looking for health and fitness through martial arts and not just physical health, but mental health and fitness through the martial arts, then we were providing that service as well. So I remember in the beginning, a lot of people would say, oh, you can't compete and run a professional business. You can't run a a school, an academy and be a competitor. And I was like, challenge accepted. So I'm balanced from the beginning, that lifestyle as a competitor with a training center for people who were not interested in competing at all. They just wanted to learn jujitsu for self-defense. And we started running a program for all ages children. And I think my oldest student was like 63 years old or something like that. Wow. And so we start the kids at four years old and we have a program that's been solid there for 18 years of kids in the tiny Cobras class, three three to like eight years old. And then the junior Cobras class from eight to 12 years old. And then after 12, they go into a teens slash adult class and also have a competition team apart from that, trying to keep that balance. Because, you know, the other day I saw, with all due respect, he, this is his perspective and his opinion and everyone's entitled to that. And they have their reasons for it. But I saw like one of the Valente brothers, I think it was Pedro Valente, he posted something on social media where he was kind of like explaining to somebody what their goal and purpose is through the art of jiu-jitsu you know because i'm I'm sure the topic comes up about sport jiu-jitsu or um, self-defense jiu-jitsu right and so their Mm -hmm. their focus for the school and what they provide for the public is strictly self-defense but that's not to say that they don't train the sport style of jiu-jitsu right there's rolling in his academy they just have a different group of people that do that but what he's presented to the public is self-defense jujitsu, you know and health and fitness and physical and mental health and fitness with art so he kind of used an example there about what his perception was about what you get through competition. He was saying something about some famous coach that, you know, somebody brought to his attention, an athlete that wasn't abiding by some moral standard. We're here to win. We're not here to be, you know, role models. I understand what he was saying. I respect it, but I was a little bothered by it just because Mm -hmm. we can't contain the art to that. You can't say that if you're a competitor, you cannot learn moral attributes or virtues as a competitor. You can't say that. Mm -hmm. You you can't say that only through self-defense, you can learn to be empathetic and kind and respectful you can't i just posted a video like not too long ago of an experience i had with a gentleman beto fadu who i went to register for this uh, championship indianapolis and indianapolis open and i saw that he was the only one in my category and i saw that there was like another division i I competed master four i think it was like master one i saw there were like three or four other guys over there Mm -hmm. and i was i was like man i want some action you know, I'm about to jump in master one. But then I thought about it and I said, damn, it will suck because I've been there before where you go and you've paid the flight and you go and you compete and you make weight and you get there and nobody's there. So I said, man, I can't do that to Beto, man. And I said, you know what? I'm going to stick in this division. I flew out there. I stood there and he didn't know what my intentions were, right? But I had them in my mind, in my heart. And I was very kind and respectful. We had a phenomenal match. It was beautiful jujitsu. None of this butt flopping stuff, playing with the feet, getting three penalties stuff. We had a back and forth, there was judo throws, there was sweeps, guard passes, back takes. It was beautiful jujitsu. And then afterwards, you know, I gave him a pound, a hug, you know? And I was like, and you can see the respect. You can see the empathy. You can see, in, in Spanish, the cariño. Exchange between the both of us, and that was, and we're both competitors. This guy's been competing for a long time. I've been competing for a very long time, and so that's what cutting edge is about. I'm not arguing. You want to do self defense, fine. You want to do jujitsu, fine. We do it all. I'm not complaining about oh the competitors, and I'm not complaining about oh the self defense only. We teach self defense at the academy. I just posted a video what my daughter's doing in a demonstration and the kids promotion. Pure self defense jujitsu, but I also have and we balance and manage a group of people that are interested in competing. And I teach them all to be empathetic and to be respectful and to be kind and to uphold those virtues, those amazing virtues that is inherent in the martial arts.
0: So when you do encounter students or people, new people that have come that are a bit contrary to your philosophy, how do you reconcile that?
1: that's tough man that's, that's a good question <laughs> we were talking about this the other day i was saying that we have a great jiu at the academy and we know our school is known for that we don't really get much visitors because at a lot of schools and that's their decision to do that's none of my business i understand why they do it it's more liberal where you can come in whenever you want however you want the guys come in with dirty geese they stink the academy stinks the students are sleeping with each other the instructors sleeping with the students and whatever, that's your school. You run it the way you want to run it. I don't run my school like that. So that becomes a problem for people who come in. They're like, damn, it's great jujitsu here. I want to get some training. But they're used to that environment and that world. So that's why we don't really get that many visitors because it's a problem. They feel uncomfortable. They should feel uncomfortable because their academy is not for that. My academy, life, I go to teach jiu-jitsu. I go to train. When the women come to my school, I look at it as a woman who's looking for self-defense. And so, and my job is to teach her self-defense. My job is not to try to court her or date her or whatever. I can't control what students do, but I try to manage that a little bit. I don't want this bug spreading around and then you have these scandals on the mats. We already know. We don't have to go into mm. details about that. It's unfortunate, but it exists. And so that's an issue. Now, some people... We have three groups of people. The people who just can't—it just doesn't work for them the way I run the school. So I, listen, I like this guy. He got great jujitsu and all, but I, just, I can't. That's not my school. That school's not for me. Then I have the guys who they're like, "Damn, it's great jujitsu," and they just deal with it. They're like, "I don't really like this, but I'm gonna go there." They just stay quiet and mm-hmm. they manage somehow to just coincide with that. They know that there they cannot do those things, but whatever. And then you have the people who agree with it, right? I have students that are like, no, that's right. I came from a traditional martial arts background, from judo, or they were in the military whatever. And they really appreciate that. I listen, I want to come train. I don't want to come here. And it's like a dating service and all these problems on the mat, beefing and, and drama in relationships. So I just do the best I can, I, regardless of what the environment is at the school. I try to make sure that I'm always very helpful, kind and respectful to everyone. You know, people are welcome to come to the school and train. If you come with a dirty gear, I'm, I'm going to let you know. It's disrespectful to your instructor. It's disrespectful to your teammates. Is it's just disrespectful to come with a white gi and it looks brown and it stinks. So at our dojo, it doesn't smell like that at the academy because I don't allow that. You know what we don't have at the school? I don't have anybody getting ringworm, molluscum, staph infection. We don't have that. So sometimes, like they say, you got to run a tight ship, man. We run a tight ship and some people don't like it, but it's all good. There's it's a school down the street where you could go over there and there's a dog pissing and pulling on the mats. Hey. You and get all the ringworm you want.
0: There's <laughs> a product for everyone. That's for sure. Yes, there's so a market you, for everything. Can you tell me about the the training triangle ah. that I'm trying to discuss?
1: <laughs> that's part. That's my little when I'm dealing with like students and we're talking about sports psychology. It doesn't only um relate to sports psychology, but mainly it relates to sports psychology as when I use it. For example, I had a gentleman the other day came to me, did, did a private lesson. I thought it was going to be about technique. And it turned out that he has aspirations of competing. So he wanted to just get my time alone and ask me, professor, what do I need to do? Or what do you suggest I do? Because I want to compete. But he said the key words, he said, I want to be successful. I was like, all right, now we're talking. So I was like, you got to think of it. And I remember, I don't know if you know this, but, and I can be wrong, but if I remember correctly, it was Hicks and Gracie who created that triangle logo for the Gracie Academy. And it was like, there, there was three points of the triangle. The first was self-defense. The other one was uh, jujitsu, sport jujitsu. And then the other point of the triangle was valetudu, using jujitsu for all three. So I thought that was genius. And then, uh, so then I kind of borrowed that from Hickson in that I tell my students, if you're going to prepare for a competition, you should think of it as a triangle at the top of your triangle is technique. And you got to work on everything related to technique, not just the actual technique, but, you know, maybe mental training, affirmations, uh, visualization, all those things that have to do with the technical aspect of Jiu Jitsu. And then on the other two sides of the triangle, you have your speed and your strength. I always say the the quote that a strong athlete is a winning athlete. And then you have your speed training, right? You could lift all the weights you want. You could clean and jerk all you want. But if if you get into a match and right off the bat, everybody's moving and you don't have the cardio to back it up, you're just not going to last. So you have to work on the speed aspect where you're working on agility and working on your cardio and endurance. And so those three points, I believe that if we practice them and pay attention to them diligently, it's going to give you a, a higher percentage of success as a competitor. Nothing is guaranteed, right? You, you can prepare all you want. How many guys that we see that were in the best shape of their lives at this last ADCC who were the, the favorites to win or who were coming back to defend their title and they didn't make it? That doesn't mean that they weren't prepared. We just have no control over that. You really have no control over whether you're going to win or you're going to lose. The only thing you have control over is what you do to prepare for that. And you have to prepare for both. You got to be able to understand that it's the two sides of the same coin. You can prepare to win and then you might be in the best shape of your life. Go there and a guy upset you and you lose. Mm -hmm. But you can't go off crying and pouting and whining about it. You got to understand that it's the life we lead as a competitor. Everyone is guaranteed to do one or two things, you're guaranteed to win and you're guaranteed to lose. And so when I'm speaking to the athletes, that's where that comes from. And then we try to go more in depth about how to prepare from the technical perspective. Come to class, attend the workshops, attend the seminars, invest in your private lessons, which my first professor, Mario Lemos, used to say is the filet mignon of jiu It's where you're going to really get the sustenance of, and connect with your professor there's so many different ways from the technical aspect that it can help you. You know, even social media. I tell my guys, hey, if you're on social media. It helps. Take a little, that feature that Instagram has of creating folders and organize your jiu-jitsu in the, in the words of the great Marcelo Garcia. Organize your jiu-jitsu. Take a folder where, you know, it's guard passing, a folder where it's, um, you know, back attacks. And, you know, visually that helps, right? That's part of the visual training. You know, if you're, mm-hmm. if you're on a YouTube, YouTube has a lot of great resources. You know, they have videos where people do breakdowns and things like that, or a lot of detail involved with that one point of the triangle. And it's duplicated into the other two, right? We could talk about speed training, how many different ways you can get in shape, your grip, your cardio, how, you name it. Um, fast reflex, twitch muscle Reaction training is like, there's so many things, but that's where the, the purpose of that is, is usually in relation to the competitor and the areas that he should focus on preparing to the best of his ability. So this way he can have some success as a competitor.
0: Improving your mobility and recovery will only benefit your BJJ. And as such, we highly recommend you try Yoga for BJJ at yogaforbjj.net. Use our code FWB, all uppercase FWB, to get 20% off your subscription, yogaforbjj.net. One of the things I want to deep dive into is definitely the speed training that you discuss. I've heard you discuss this throughout. And also, you are super technical. And I usually watch videos on a faster speed, and I slowed actually years down because it was almost so fast. So let's talk about speed training and also in the triangle, what I typically see are people that are like into rolling, and then maybe some technicality, but I I think this speed and strength part of the triangle is often neglected. People don't quite know how to balance it, but I'm fascinated by this speed training because I rarely hear anyone discuss this at all. Strength training I hear all the time, but speed training, not so much. Can you dive into that as well?
1: Yeah. Think of like, for example, Olympic lifts is super important. You have to do that. I think that's a very important part of of an athlete preparing to compete and perform to the best of his ability. Like I said, a strong athlete is a winning athlete. But the movements are very strict form and rigid, and they're not functional, so to speak, to what we do in jiu-jitsu. So there has to be a balance, right? You can't only clean and jerk and do squats because we move a lot in jiu-jitsu. So I think that speed training complements that. Not just from the cardio's perspective, but also from the mobility perspective that you're just doing these different things that allow you to build strength in a way that you can't just from cleaning and jerking, right? Just think of like the a kettlebell and a halo. Like until the kettlebell, no one ever grabbed a plate and did this. That right? was only done after someone with the kettlebell took it and started doing halos. I absolutely right. love halos because you just, you're moving in a way that we move in jujitsu here, you know, when you're blocking defense and moving. Right. And so I'm never going to get that kind of strength development doing a a shoulder press.
0: Just to describe to the listeners, he's holding a weight plate over your head and you're rotating it over your head. Yeah.
1: That's why I believe that 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 speed training, there's a lot that falls into speed training, right? Because I could do ladder, floor, floor ladder drills, right? That's speed training too. I could do sprints and that's speed training too. I could do box jumps. That's speed training too. Those are all things that, that, you know, it's common knowledge, but it, it helps. You have to balance the two to this way. You can be a functional athlete. You just don't want to be a strong athlete. You have to be functional for jujitsu. It's like you could do regular pushups, but we don't just push like this. You know, we, we have one hand up and one hand down, you know, when we push mm-hmm. pushing. And so all those exercises that fall into that category, speed training, which is kind of like kettlebell training, you know, kettlebells, um, mobility drills, all those things fall into that. They just, you just can't do that if you, if you're doing Olympic lifts, but Olympic lifts is necessary. And so you're right. Some people don't balance those things. You have guys that just love to lift. Mm -hmm. And then you have guys that don't like to lift at all. Like you said, you have guys that just like to roll. Marcelo Garcia was talking about that. Like early in his career, he didn't he didn't like it. He was like, oh, you got to lift. He's like, no, I don't like it. His coach kept telling him, you got to lift. He didn't like it. He'd do it for one, two, three days and he just let it go. Mm-hmm. But then now as he's older, he's realizing like, man, that could have helped me prevent a lot of injuries, you know? For him, it's too late, you know? But he, he did suggest in that Stuart Cooper film, like, you know, if you're a young guy and you can do it, do it because it's going to help mm-hmm. you, you know?
0: What makes it your jujitsu look so fluid, I think, is a lot of the speed training in addition to the strength training, but especially the speed training too, because to see you go from like a side guard or even from bottom so quickly to the back, just something like that, that kind of movement, you know, that fast movement, fluid type of movement, you don't see that too often. Usually it's like this big lumbering kind of push, you know, those gross motor mechanics and strength type of stuff, but to make things look like they're flowing, it seems like your speed training has really benefited that.
1: Yes. And that also coincides with the way we drill. Mm-hmm. And so the way I drill is different types of ways to drill, right? There's that Gracie style drilling, like the real smooth and slow flow type of drilling. And then there's like speed drilling, right? Where you're just doing the drill as fast as you can for, mm-hmm. you know, a certain amount of time, 30 seconds, 45 seconds, a minute, mm-hmm. you know, then there's live drilling where yeah. I'll do the position and say to myself, okay, there's, um, you know, 10 guys on the mat. I got about, if I do one round with them at four minutes or six minutes, I got six minutes to be able to execute this switch knee cut. How many times can I do that switch knee cut on them while they're resisting within a six minute period to everybody in the room, right? I, I already drilled it before sparring. And then I'm like, now what I did in before sparring, I have to do to everybody in the room. So this way I can leave this night after the session with some numbers in the book. How many numbers did we put in? So we did the slow drill in the beginning where, and I take advantage of teaching, right? So let's say I'm teaching a class and dofu sitting there. I'm like, well, if we're going to go with this cross knee cut, let's take a look here. Let's look at it from the position. Later on, we'll look at it and connect it to other positions. But just from here, so you understand the details. I'm going to go step one, step two, step three, step four. Okay. Ready? Grab a partner. Let's go. Bang. Stop. Bring it in for Q&A. All right. Questions. Professor. All right. Let's address the question. Here we go. Into more detail. So I just drilled again, Slow. And I'm giving you the details. All right, let's grab a partner. Go three, two, one, clap. Boom. All right, let's go. Let's bring it back in. Any other questions? All right, no questions. All right. Let's talk about how to connect that, right? Is close quarter passing or distance passing? How am I going to connect this cross knee cut? All right, you got it? All right. Let's go. mouthpiece's pieces, knee pads. So everybody drilled it. We did, I did it slow. And then in the drilling session, I did it a little faster, mm-hmm. you know, because I sit there, I watch them, I walk around, make sure everybody's good. And then I'll go and drill. I'll grab a partner and bang it out 20, 30, 40, 50 times if I can, fast. And then it's time for sparring. All right, mouthpiece knee pass. And I'm thinking the same technique. All right, we're going to roll with these guys. Let me see if I can do this cross knee cut and look for the position. Even if I start on the bottom, let's say I start on the bottom and I need to do cross knee cut on top, I'll do a sweep and come to the top and then position the guy purposely. I know he's going to go to guard and then bam, hit the cross knee cut. Pass his guard, let him recover, let him do his escape or crossover and then do it again and do it again and do it again and do it again over and over and over again. So there's three different ways to drill. At minimum, there's probably other ways to drill too, but you got to have the cardio for that. You have to have reflexes for that, positioning for that, the posture for that, the timing for that, and the awareness of what's happening in the match. So you can execute that. So that's been helpful for me. Uh, It's nothing new. I didn't make this up. If you watch like, for example, any video of Marcelo Garcia and you see where he's doing a guillotine on everybody, You know, he'll roll one guy like six minutes and catch him like multiple times in the same thing. And then the next guy is the same thing. That's how he's drilling. That's how he's Mm -hmm. practicing. We heard stories, old stories of Hickson doing that. Remember the stories of Hickson? I remember there was a story of Hickson in a seminar where he went. He came to the U.S. He hadn't been back to Brazil in a long time. They invited him back for a seminar. There were a bunch of world champions there. And then he's teaching the x troke So the guys like, you know, if it's not too much trouble, man, like everybody here knows the x choke. Can you, you know, teach something else? He's like, oh, okay, sure. So he taught something else. It was Mm -hmm. time to roll. He catches everybody in the room with the extra. We heard the stories of him doing that in training, where he'd count down: "I'm going to get you an extra in three, two, bang! Get you an extra." It was a specific way that he practiced, and then you know other greats do that as well. Marcelo being one of them, and you can see that online. And then, so if we're smart, we won't reinvent the wheel, right? We just follow the lead of the greats.
0: Absolutely. Now, earlier you mentioned privates being the filet mignon of uh, jujitsu. How can someone get the most out of a private? I'm sure you've seen it a million times where someone comes in and and should white belts even be taking privates uh, come and say, what do you want to work on? I don't know. I don't know.
1: I'm going to play the student side. So if I were doing a private lesson, I always go to do a private lesson and it's a well thought out private lesson. I don't just go there and be like, well, I don't know what to do. I want to pick an area that I can work on. There's two ways to do it. One could be like work on an area that you're having an issue with or work on an area that you do good on how to do it better. Sometimes we do something good, but there's always room for improvement. And Mm -hmm. so someone with more experience could come and say, hey, Adolfo, you do this knee cut very, very well. Let me show you this little detail here that's going to make it better. And you're just like, what? Everybody's in trouble now. Or you can go and be like, listen, I don't really know how to do the knee cut, but I'm interested in it. Or let's say you came to me, Adolfo came to me and was like, I don't know, but I'm interested in passing. Then I will say to Adolfo, listen, there's a variety of ways to pass. You have knee cuts, there's different types of knee cuts, cross knee cuts, foot knee cut, top knee cut, there's shin cuts. Once you wipe, there's um, <laughs> leg drags, toriandors, stack passes, over-under passes, step-through passes, cartwheel passes. Now, if I could tell Adolfo as a beginner the path he should take, I would say, Adolfo, the best thing for you to learn right now is the knee cut because mm-hmm. it's the easiest of all those passes. It's the easiest one. So I'm not going to make it complicated by teaching you a long step pass. Because you're a beginner and you don't have the mechanics to do that, but Mm -hmm. you can do a knee cut easily. Now in the future, when you come back to me for another private or maybe in seminars or workshops, I'm going to connect that knee cut to the long step, the knee cut to the leg drag, the knee cut to the cross knee, the the knee cut to an over under pass, the knee cut to a stack pass. And you have a key master there, you know, that's going to open up the doors to these passes. Mm -hmm. So I always try to think like that when I'm doing a private, it's either an issue I'm having that I need to fix that sometimes professor cannot give me the full detail of the position because he got thirty other people on the mat to attend to. So now in this one-on-one is just him and I, where he can help me fix that or two something that I do good, but I'm trying to find a way to do better. That's what I did with Tainan. I was like, listen, I like this position really well. I do it good. These are my numbers, eight out of ten. How can I increase the numbers for this? He's like, okay, this is how you do it better. You understand? Uh oh. And- <laughs> i don't want to say what it is so this way no no figure it out <laughs> lastly connecting all that thinking in terms of like this is the way i think if i came to adolfo, say, adolfo i like this this position here but i can only do it like this is there a way to connect that to other positions so now i can chain my techniques because it's one thing to learn a technique but there's another thing to chain them together right we gotta link them i gotta link that knee cut to side control like this is a process. I can't just knee cut you. If I do the knee cut and I don't do it correctly you could probably put your shin across my hip and push me away. Right? I'm coming through towards your right side. I split your legs. I bring the knee through on the mat. But if my hand positioning is incorrect, let's say I don't have a right underhook or I don't have the right hand on the hip, you could just bring your knee right in front, the top left knee and push on my hip, make some space and recover your bottom leg. So the knee cut has to be done correctly. And then once I do it correctly, I have to be able to connect that the side control because once I get the side control, if I don't do that correctly, you're going to start framing, br- bridging, pushing me away. And I did the knee cut for nothing. So it's one thing to learn the technique and there's another thing to chain them together. So that's how I think. And if a student came to me and had no idea, that's usually the route that I take. It, it depends on how new the student is. Let's say, for example, it's a student that has never been to my beginner's class. Then I usually always take the route of teaching them the fundamentals to, through self-defense. If he's been to my self-defense class and he already knows pretty much some, some of the stuff that's going on there, then I'll go to the mat level and be mm-hmm. like, let's connect something that you learn in the self-defense class with, with this lesson. And I'll try to guide him and create that chain for him. In self-defense, where we always talk about takedowns, clinching, takedown, clinch, takedown. Okay, you took him down. Now what? When the self-defense class, we go over the basics of a clinch, takedown, maybe a kimura, maybe a choke. Now we'll go in depth, make a nice series for him. Listen, I want to see you go back into class, Odofo. And when you take him down and you pass, I want you looking for these these variations. You learn one, but here are three other options Mm -hmm. to start teaching him to think the way we were taught back in the day. You don't even hear anybody talking about that anymore, that three steps ahead, the triple Mm -hmm. threat, the double threat. I remember that was, that's all we heard when I was a wiper was like the idea of the double threat, the idea of the triple threat, setting up your positions so that this way you had a variety of attacks in order in case you missed the one or the second one, you could still trap your opponent.
0: So what makes a great jujitsu student?
1: Man, a great student. A great student has to be someone who's open-minded, willing to learn, malleable, have a white belt mentality, appreciative of the instructor respectful to what they've accomplished. I'm not saying like worshiping them, none of that stuff. I've had great instructors in in a variety of capacities in my life. I never worshiped them, but I respect what they've accomplished. I've always gone into the class, respecting what they've done. And that that just put me mentally and, and emotionally in a place where I could really receive their instruction, never going in there thinking I know more than them or know better than them. I remember one time when I was taking that photography lesson with um, Craig Wallace Dale, this guy was an accomplished photographer, man, phenomenal instructor as well. Wow. And, and I, I was just in awe of his work. I remember walking into this classroom and just looking at his, he had these different portraits on the wall. He had this one series of black and white portraits, absolutely stunning photos. I was aspiring in my mind. Damn, I can't wait to the day I could get to that level. Mm. Understanding light and composition to that point where I could recreate something as, as stunning as those photos that he did. But I remember there were these guys in the class that they would come in and professor would teach us something. And, you know, these guys were going on about something that they learned on YouTube let's say he talked about um, composition and there's different types of composition. Let's say the linear perspective. And then, you know, he was showing us something. These guys would come on like, Oh, well, I saw there was another way to do that on YouTube. I mean, I look over to my side like this, like, man, did you just really say that bro? Like, I can't believe this guy had the nerve like man, shut up. <laughs> man, I don't care what you saw on YouTube, man. I'm trying to learn from Craig Wallace Dale, bro. Do you know who this guy is? Mm. Like some people just, they don't come with the right mindset to class. Mm. Right, like I don't care what you saw on YouTube, bro. You're not on YouTube right now. Listen to what the instructor's saying. He's sharing with you what he learned through experience, not on some video. Mm-hmm. So a, a good student has to have the right mentality when he comes to class, you know. And I think that's one of them. Is like respect what the person has accomplished and learn from their experience. I'm not saying worship them, nothing like that. We're not putting them on a pedestal or worshiping them, but we're respecting the, the process they went through. It's like the other day I said to my students, if I wanted to open up a bakery, does it make sense to go ask a plumber how to do it? <laughs> it makes no sense at all. When yeah. I open up a bakery, Adolfo's a baker, and I have aspirations to become a baker, I'm going to ask you, hey, you know, how do I do this? Can you give me an idea? Can you guide me on the path? Why? Because you have the experience. You've been down the path already. So the student has to understand and respect that and then take advantage of it. Come with an open mind, listen, learn, ask questions. And I always say this when I go out to do seminars and stuff. I always tell the students, learn any way you can. Everything is helpful. The internet is helpful. Instruction is helpful. Training with your partners is helpful. Going to open mat is helpful. Going to class is helpful. Doing workshops is helpful. Seminars is helpful. Connect with your professor. Invest in those one-on-ones through his experience, guide you and give you more detail and connect with him. Mm. Appreciate his process. I think with that kind of attitude, man, the student can go really far.
0: So conversely, what makes a great instructor?
1: Great instructor got to be able to look at the student regardless of what, who he is, what his race is, what his abilities are, and transmit the knowledge of jiu-jitsu to them. You know, Hori and Gracie said that he learned from Elio that there is no, there's no such thing as a, a bad student. The student doesn't know anything. There's a good instructor and a bad instructor. A bad instructor is not paying attention to these things and is going to blame the student. Because they don't know or they can't perform. He's looking for something. Maybe the, stu- the instructor is looking for a, a superstar athlete. A good instructor is not looking for that. A good instructor is going to look at that person, put themselves in his shoes, be empathetic, and then be a diligent professor to be able to transmit the knowledge of jiu to this beginner and set him on the path. That's your job. Your job is to guide them. If you're lazy, if you're out of shape, how are you going to guide him?
0: How do you keep your sword sharp in terms of teaching, instructing? How do you grow as an instructor? The private AEJ with Tynan, for instance, that speaks volumes, I think. Please elaborate. Uh, Yes,
1: yes. One is when I first started training, uh, my first professor, Mario Lemos, he trained like many years with Hickson, Heuler, uh, Elio. And so he was trained. He did the instructor, the Gracie Academy instructor course back in Brazil. And so at first I just mimicked him. I just understood that I was like, "I, I probably don't understand everything, the why to everything, but I can sense that there's a reason why he's doing this because it resonated with me as a student. So when he was one day like, oh, I can't teach, you know? I was like, I'll open up. I just kind of mimicked him. Then over the years, I started to understand why he did certain things because I would get mm-hmm. feedback from the students. I was like, wow, these people are smart. Elliot was a genius. Mario was a genius. He was a phenomenal professor. But then over the years- I had that interest to be the best instructor I can, so I invested in courses. For example, Dave Kovar has a phenomenal course. I don't know if he does it anymore, but he used to do this um this instructors course, teaching you how to um how to teach, how to do presentations, how to speak to people, how to handle children, good children, how to handle a rebellious child on the mat. You know, mm. um actually, I have one of his books on my desk there that he recommended to us, the Dad's Toolbox. It goes real in depth on communication, communication ability. So I invested in that. I invested in other things to help me become a instruct, uh, better instructor as well. For example, I invested into the uh, Dale Carnegie course, um, How to Win Friends and Influence People. That was a phenomenal investment mm-hmm. because we communicate. And so I was always interested in how can I be a better communicator and transmit the knowledge of jiu-jitsu. And there's a variety of ways. When you're dealing with people on the mats, you know, at minimum, they're learning three different ways. They learn by watching, listening, or doing. Some people learn only one way, or some people are gifted to be able to do all three And so you have to understand that as an instructor, you got to understand that some people can only, you have to be able to communicate with them if they're the listening type, give them the analogies, give them those mental paintings, because doing it and seeing it doesn't work for them. They're cerebral. They need to hear something. Give me an analogy, connect it with me in some way. And then when you're teaching, when you see the videos, when you watch those videos that I post, that's the way I present the class in a way that they can see it for those guys that learn the visual learners. I have to do it in a very particular way that he sees it and he's like, man, I get it. And then you have those people that need to do it. And that's why in the class, I always give ample time. I give ample time for them to drill and then just let them work it out. I used to be the type of instructor, right? That would be like, all right, let's go three, two, one, clap, boom, to go drill and then go follow you. I'll follow you. No, no, put your hand here. No, put your hand there. I don't do that anymore because you got to process the information. So mm-hmm. I just showed you, I just gave you a verbal explanation, a, a visual reference, and then now I'm letting you do it. And then I'm going to come and add more information to that. It's not good. You're going to get overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. So I just let him go. Let Adolfo work it out. Let him work it out. Mm-hmm. Even if you raise your hand, a professor, I'm like, go ahead, work it out a few more times. I'll be right there to help you, but I won't go.
0: Does it kill you to watch him stumble through that?
1: Yeah, it's necessary yeah. now. Mm-hmm. You know, I learned that as a parent, as a dad. Mm-hmm. Good point. As a father, I don't want to see my kid make any pitfalls, but sometimes you just got to let them go. And so with the doers, I let them go. And then eventually, then I'll, I'll bring it back in. And I'm like, then I'll just, oh, Adolfo, you had a question. Professor. Okay. Let's look at that. Come here. Now I'll touch you. Here, do it with me. Okay. And then send you back. All right, let's go do it one more time. Drill again. Give them ample time to do it, to work it out. So it's, it's a lot of stuff, you know, it's very important. But as you can tell, like I'm explaining to you, it's not just casual. It's like. This is something that I thought out and been very diligent over the years to make sure that I do it as close to perfect as possible so that everyone in the room has a phenomenal experience when we're teaching.
0: That's so important. And also the aspects of you investing in yourself too, I think was of the utmost importance as well.
1: Yes. Super important.
0: Can you tell me a time that uh, you wanted to quit and why?
1: (laughs) Man, there was one time I was a blue belt. And uh, I almost quit. I went to go, it was my first tournament. And um, I I won a few matches, made it to the finals and I lost in the finals. I got caught in the armor and um, he went hard on my arm. So before jujitsu, I was a cosmetologist. And so when I couldn't move my arm, like, after the next day, I was like, bro, I have a family to feed, you know? Yeah, that's like,
0: work. Yeah.
1: I, I, yeah, I was like, damn, I got to go. I, I was trying to figure out how am I going to cut my customer's hair? You know, I I did it. I figured it out. But it was hard. It was very painful. I, I hyperextended my elbow. So that was the reason why I thought about quitting. I wasn't going to quit, but it, that thought crossed my mind. I was like, suck it up, buttercup. Let's just uh, get through this and, and get right back to it. But it did really make me think about that because at that time I was just a hobbyist, you know, like I wasn't right. thinking about being an instructor or academy owner. I was just like, I was like, damn, I don't know, man, this is crazy.
0: Let's talk about Choke Lab. What is Choke Lab? It looks like it's a lot of different stuff. On, we got like instructional videos. We got merch. Can you explain what it is?
1: So Choke Lab was a passion project, right? And, and it was like, it started off with... um. I was really angry about something that had happened in 2014 or I think it was 15. There was a world expo and they had um, these uh, super fights. They had a bracket super fights and then they had this seminar, this mega seminar that they did where they had Boshesha, Salo Hibiru, the Mendez brothers, you name it. There was a bunch of people. It was like a big world expo. So- Master Robson, he had a super fight. It was one of five super fights at that event. And with all due respect to the other black belts that that won or performed, Robson was the only of the five super fights that finished his opponent. And there was no coverage at all by any of the, at that time, mainstream media sources. Kid Peligo didn't cover it. He covered Shaolin's victory, but he didn't report on Robson's victory. And um, Gracie Magazine didn't cover it. Tatami Magazine didn't cover it. And so, you know, I was a little set in my mind, you know, going over all the, the logical aspect of it. I was like, man, the art of jujitsu was made for the small guy. Here we have a small guy, the smallest of them all. And the object of the game in jiu is to look for the finish. And we have the only guy who was a small guy who got the finish. And no one reported on it, except for this one guy. And every time I bring him up, I can't remember his name. I don't really know his name, but he 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 did a report on it. He went up to Robson and asked him about Superfight. And he had little clips, some B-roll footage that was behind that footage of the interview. So oh. I pulled it down and I chopped it up. Now that time, I really wasn't into Instagram at all. I didn't understand it. And then, so I posted the video and it went viral, right? All my teammates started spreading it around of the results of the match. And then... That's when I I was like, man, I started talking trash. I was was talking trash to my my son. My son, he received the full blast of all the trash talking I could ever come up with, right? Stuff that you can't see on the internet. I was like... How many people are out there, you know, Robson is Robson, but how many people out there contributed to the uh, art of jujitsu who are never going to show up on the cover of Gracie magazine They're never going to show up on a, on a flow grappling article or video? They're just not because they're not like, I don't know, the favorites, right? The the media has their favorites, right? Who's relevant and uh, like freaking flow grappling. They made their own who's number one, right? It's like they, they made their own who's number one. I was like, somebody got to do something. I was like, well, I could sit here complaining or I could jump in, throw my hat into the ring and find a source and start trying to look and spread information about people who possibly are never going to show up on Gracie Magazine. And that was the idea behind Choke Lab. So Mm -hmm. I was like, but in order to attract people to Choke Lab, I had to do what the other pages are doing, which is posting videos of the famous people. Like if you go to like dope page, I'm not criticizing condemning him at all. I think it's called... um, Something grapple. slipping my mind right now. You don't post nothing about anybody if it's not King Kainan. It's, like, it's just, just all the superstars. There's a new guy out. He's doing a phenomenal job too. Vitor mm-hmm. Comunica. It's a great page. You ain't never going to see him interview somebody from an academy mm-hmm. a, a professor I mean Meek, Melky right now because Melky's like one of the hot professors out there right now but just an average mm-hmm. professor you know how many other champions are out there and they have these professors behind them when was the last time you saw somebody do an interview with uh, Zé yeah, no, I don't know that guy's a phenomenal coach, produced right. many champions, namely Otavio Souza, just to name one, multiple-time world champion. Who's done an interview with him, right? It's crazy how this stuff works. I would love to do an interview with that guy. I just- There's
0: there's so many of these treasures out there. There's so many there. of them. Right? Yeah, there's so many.
1: But you're not going to see Phil Grappling doing anything with him because they're biased, right? They have their likes and who they don't like or whatever. And so that was my attempt, but I'm only one person, right? So okay. I attempted to do that through Troke Lab, you know, where I was like, we do post famous people, but every chance I get, like, I don't know if you saw the other day. I posted this reposted a page called Matt made where there was this guy Julio, I think yeah. his name was.
0: Yeah, a but, great channel.
1: Yeah, I was like, man, you know, he's not no famous superstar athlete, two time, five time world champion, ADC, you know, right. he's just a regular guy that trains, man. And mm-hmm. it was great for that kind of exposure to the art of jujitsu, you know. And sometimes we do reposts, and the repost is, you know, not anybody famous, but he wake up in the morning and see all those alerts from all the likes and comments that he got, you know, which is pretty cool. So we're doing the best that we can, you know, I'm just one person, you know.
0: Yeah, that's cool. That's a lot that you got going on just in Choke Lab alone. But you do have merchandise. You do have like have videos for sale as well, right?
1: Yeah, because naturally people start asking, right? When we made the logo, a lot of people were asking me like, yo, that logo's dope, that logo's dope. Little by little, I was testing the waters to see if people would actually buy Choke Lab merchandise. And then as it grew, then we started to create more, more merchandise. We're going to keep doing what we do. We post the videos. If you want to buy a t-shirt, trust me, it's going to be the best t-shirt you ever bought. Because mm-hmm. if you're listening to this podcast and you heard anything i said from the beginning you're going to realize that nothing is just by chance so you best yeah. believe i'm over there with the tape measurer at two o'clock in the morning making sure that all the material is measured correctly so this way when the customer gets it he's like damn this is the dopest t-shirt i ever got
0: how do you see the direction of jujitsu going in Man, I think jujitsu has been, jujitsu has been fine.
1: It's been growing since the beginning. It's never going to stop. Recently, I had a conversation with one of my black folks. He was like, oh, you know, if it wasn't for Gordon Ryan, there wouldn't be so many eyes. I'm like, what are you talking about, man? What are you talking mm. about? I'm not going to say that he hadn't contributed to some of the growth, right? Like more eyes because of the trash talking, right? People love drama. But I think when it, let's say, for example, let's just talk about ADCC, right? Did you, just yeah. use this example. ADCC They've always had successful events with the when they were in the US. When they went to Barcelona, there was nobody in the stands. When they go outside of the US, it was very few in attendance because who the heck is training in Barcelona, really? There are people training, but not like in the US. Sure. But when they had it in 2007 here in Jersey, when they had it in 2005 in, in, in Cali, it was packed. There was no the stadium, go back and look at the Rico Rodriguez match with Marcelo Garcia and listen to the crowd. Look at the stand of the crowd and see. It was packed. Now, obviously, as the time goes, it's going to grow. We're not, you know, we, we got to we gotta recognize that That's a fact. But to say that it grew the way it did now only because of Gordon Ryan? Come on, man. You know, he gets some credit. I'll give him the credit he get, but I can't give him all the credit for that. As far as um, jujitsu and the geese concerned, you know, all this talk about is going to fade away. That it's gonna... no. What are these people no. talking about? What are you talking yes. about? Yeah. Listen, I'm only one person. I've been training since 2001. And every single person I've ever come in contact with, they either know because of my ears or for me talking about jujitsu or my clothes, that I train jujitsu. I it everywhere I go. If there was only a hundred others like me, there's hundreds of thousands of others like me. It's not going anywhere. The gi's never going to fade away. Now, if you want to be more specific and talk about, will more gi athletes be attracted to no gi because of the purses? Yes. There's no doubt about that. People need to make money. But because of that, the gi's never going to disappear. That's just those select athletes. They don't make up the whole body of jiu-jitsu practitioners. They don't. It's just professional athletes. So I see jiu-jitsu going in the same direction that it's been going since the beginning. It grew in Brazil, thanks to Elio and uh, the Gracies and others as well, Fada and all those other pioneers. It grew outside of Brazil, across the globe, and, and it's going to continue to do that. And the Gi's not going anywhere. So if anything, there's going to be more people training the Gi because we have way more people who are interested in the self-defense and just the social aspect of jiu-jitsu than competing for ADCC.
0: In general, it seems like the vast majority of the revenue comes from Gee practitioners out there. They seem to be in larger numbers for whatever reasons. I don't know if that's a generality or, or what.
1: Yeah, there are quite a few reasons why, but I think one of the reasons why is just because, just for example, where our school is, we get like the moms that come or the grandmas and they're mm-hmm. walking by, yeah. and they have this traditional mindset of the art sure. or, or any sure. art. They don't know. They come in, they'll be like, oh, quiero poner mi hijo en karate. Yeah, karate. Yeah,
0: exactly. I tell them, yeah it's,
1: yeah. yeah, it's karate. Yeah, it's karate. Yeah, bring him. <laughs> that's the mindset i'm sure yeah. they see the gi they see the uniform that's not going to change you ever think about this although this is interesting right we have kids that are born like within the last three or four years or 10 years let's go even go back for the 10 years they don't know who the hell bruce lee is well how is it that when they start playing around they go hiya hiya mm. where do they get that from right i think it's in their dna it's ingrained from the generation before them right like just mm. think about us we watch these movies we we watch bruce lee right mm. people were expecting a certain thing and the gi when you see it it just brings that out that idea mm. of like the traditional art the discipline you know the the focus the the respect you could have a school and you know when they walk in like we do something in our school's a little different because you know there's kind of like that not a controversy but you have schools like you have like AOJ right they have like the all-white academy and then you have like schools that are traditional where they just wear whatever gi you have greasy baja now that they have like real strict policies on that right like but you have to buy mm-hmm. their gi and Whatever some people feel How they feel about that I always look at it And try to keep it balanced Hmm. So we do both At our school You can wear all color gi But we also implement White gi too Monday through Thursday evenings Which is where we get Most of our traffic Most of the moms Walking in asking questions Most of the adults Coming for their truck We're all on white ghees, Nice and clean Hmm. So when they come in It looks presentable It's clean It smells clean But then in the morning And weekends And off our sessions We call them the Illuminati sessions The secret sessions (laughs) You can wear whatever Color gi you want Blue, black, white Oh
0: that's cool that's very cool.
1: Yeah, so we keep a balance, you know? So when you come in any any time in the evening to our school, you see the white gi and it's very attractive. You know, people see it, the kids see it. And when they come in and see other kids in the white gi, they want one too, you know? So I don't have anybody that ever comes in and is like, I don't like the gi or, oh, I only want to do no gi. Mm-hmm. We don't have that. Everyone loves the gi. They want to do it. They mm. want to train. They want to buy a gi. Like, I want one like that. Sometimes we get, to get a kid on a trial. We do 30-day trial with the children. And mm. then they don't want to wait to the 30-day trial to get the, um, to get the gi because they see other kids running around in their white gi, you know?
0: Your thoughts on uh, warm-ups? I think warm-ups for me, 20
1: years doing this, I've always been the type of person that always did a really strong and long warm-up. I've experienced all these years that we've really prevented a lot of injuries like that. I have very low percentage injury in my school for the last 20 years. We don't have that problem because everyone's nice and warmed up. They're loose. And we do all types of warm-ups. Sometimes I'll come in and run around and do warm-ups. We'll do all the, the, the exercises on the mat for warm up There's days where we'll come in and I'm like, guys, let's grab our partner and let's do sabaki and kumikata, footwork and gripping. We do like a judo version, like where you move moving mm-hmm. around, and you just get the grip, That's you know? Good. And then I'm like, all right, let's do some uchikomi, right? We start doing some entries for seonage, moroto seonage, ojigari, ojigari. We start doing entries. There's days where I do that. There's days where I'm like, guys, we're going right to the mat level. Grab your partner and we start doing like guard work drills, guard work drills, guard work drills, switch, two minutes, guard work drills. I'm not criticizing, condemning anything. Everything works. Hmm. It's all going to help you. Even if you did like um exercises in motion on the mat, like where you run running and skipping and side to side shuffling that works. That's like, I do that in performance training. You know, it's kind of like a slower version of like ladder drills. I don't understand how people saying it doesn't work. I think if they want to be more specific about it, say, I don't think that running in the class is going to help me with my guard work. That makes sense, right? Mm. Just be more specific. Be clear about what you're saying. Don't say, oh, the warm up doesn't work. It doesn't work for guard work. Oh, that's obvious. Yeah, running around probably doesn't work for your guard, but it works for your cardio and it works to warm you up. Now, if you want to, if these people who are commenting and criticizing and stuff, they should be specific and say, well, I feel, I believe that if I'm going to do a warm up for my guard, I should do warm ups that are guard related techniques, crossovers, cross unders, the wall drills. Okay, now be specific. But to condemn it all together because they're just not being very clear about what they're saying.
0: Mm. As a customer and a student, you know, kind of the same thing there. What I've heard is some people say, even guess at times say, how do we squeeze the most jujitsu out of this hour, hour and a half, two hours that we have together? And so warm ups always seem to be that conflicting point, that moment. That's where the counter argument comes or something. I don't even know if it's an argument as so much as people trying to ideate on how do we get more jujitsu out of that towel.
1: That makes sense. I, I I agree with that. And that's why we do that too. There's, like I said before, there's days where yeah. we come in and I don't just teach netwaza at mm-hmm. my school. We teach self defense jujitsu. We teach judo at the school. Judo netwaza, both on top and bottom. And so we do all the warm ups. There's days where I'll come in and I'm like, guys, let's get right to the mat level and work on specific guard techniques, or let's say if it's on the top, if it's a specific type of path, be it a knee cut or a leg drive. But guys, let's get right to it. This is what the drill is going to be. I'm going to set the timer. Let's go and we switch. So I agree with that. That's fine. You know, I think that's great. It's just, I don't see why people would make it an issue. Or condemn someone else that does that. To say, oh, running around the class is stupid. Like, what? Come on, man. You don't have to say that. Because then now we have these white belts who are going online and they're influenced by that. Like you, we talked about earlier before. What's a, What would you tell me would be a good student? Now, how am I going to work on my student if, if he was just listening to some podcast or some interview with somebody saw him at the one was said, class is stupid. And now he's got this face and this energy in my classroom. And I'm trying to work mm. with him. He's a beginner. He doesn't even know what he's doing. He doesn't know how to yeah. tie his belt. He's got to listen to us and let us guide him in the right path instead of going on the
0: internet. That's why I find that annoying. Let's go from one hot hot button topic to the next one, Uh, the, the belt system. So do you think we need to redefine the belt system now? The argument being that now we have these kids who are starting at, geez, two, three, four years old now. They get 10 years, legitimate years under them, and they're not even blue belts yet. They're not even purple belts yet, right? Because IBJJF rules or whatever, right? And we can't have debatably a 16-year-old black belt for multiple reasons. So does the belt system really still make sense? And how would you change it if you could, or would you even want to?
1: Yeah, man, that one's tough, man. You know, that's a tough one. I think there's always room for improvement. I think that the belts, they're doing fine the way it is. That's not to say that it can't be better. I'm just saying I don't really see anything wrong with it. Like we have enough belts for the kid to get between the age of three to 16, where they're, they're eligible for blue. And then, um, like you said, uh, for a variety of factors, right? Maturity, physical maturity, mental maturity, emotional maturity, responsibility. We see the danger that exists in other martial arts with the false sense of security, almost to the point of deception, to promote a kid to black belt. And we understand that what a black belt represents it's the level of mastery, but not just mastery and kata, it's mastery of knowledge of the technique and execution of the technique. That's a lot of stuff that we got to work with. And I don't think this should be rushed. I don't think it should be rushed. I think we got to take our time with that, especially with the children. And so I would not like to see our kids getting a black belt at 16 years old, especially this generation, the TikTokers. Just think of like how catastrophic it would be if we had a kid that went off track with that responsibility, thinking in his head, oh, well, I'm a 16-year-old black belt. I can just do whatever I want right now and then use this in the wrong way. It's very dangerous, man.
0: It's always the same example is uh, Kolabate. He was going in as a blue belt and, from Art of Jiu-Jitsu and crushing black belts in competition, adult black belts. So I guess that's the prototypical model now of thinking about this now. Does it make sense? Now he's a purple belt and he's an ADCC, and so it just makes you wonder. It makes you think, you know, do we, do we need a kid's black belt, a kid's brown belt, a kid's something like that? It gets kind of weird there in that overlap area.
1: Yeah. No. How many color belts are they?
0: Yeah. How many? Okay.
1: <laughs> he's special, man. So because of him, we're gonna go and promote everybody sixteen years old to black belt. You can't do that. This is a perfect example. Just think about it. How many Colt about this are? Are there a few others? There probably are. Is it everyone? No, it's not everyone. So he's special, man. The kid's been training since he was a little kid. His father was very diligent, you know, had him train with the best of the best. And now he's got him training with the best of the best, right? Invested in getting him out to California to train with the Mendes Brothers, you know, where they have a professional program. That's not a regular academy. I have a regular academy, you know, where I just... Train kids for self defense and fitness and discipline. I don't have any of those kids in my program. Well, the exception, with the exception of eight of them that are separated to the side.
0: I think this is going to be a growing, like, I think coal is the early indicator, sort of the canary, you know, the canary in the coal mine, so to speak, where it seems like there's going to be an uptick. Cause I'm hearing from more and more academies that they're, they're starting kids younger and younger. And they, those kids are getting better and better with all the data. So they're getting better earlier, it seems like, because they have all the information and the better coaches and et cetera now.
1: The same argument can be made, for example, let's say we had, I, I own a school and then I'll give you a perfect example. I had this kid that came to us, Devin, came from um, high school, football player, absolute savage. A unit, this kid's a unit, physical specimen mm-hmm. from the woods in Pennsylvania. I call him Devin the Destroyer. You know, he was a white belt. He was tapping out like blues and purple. Blues. It was a white belt. Mm-hmm. He got to blue, sure. he was tapping out purple and brown. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when he got to blue, he got to like purple, a little more technical. But, you know, he was a physical specimen. You know, he had the, mm-hmm. the, the agility, the timing, the speed, the, the strength. And with the little knowledge that he had, it worked for him. Even worse when he got to purple because now he has a lot more knowledge. But I made him wait. When he was a uh, blue belt, I remember there were some other guys, his peers, they got promoted to purple belt. I had to make that speech at the top. I said, listen, if you're a blue belt standing here in the class right now and you're looking and you're watching your peers get promoted to purple belt and you're thinking to yourself, man, I smash this guy in class all the time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm like, Listen just wait your time. Because you might have the skill to beat them, but you didn't put in the mat time and the hours that they have on the mat. So your time will come. And so it was like, imagine I just went and just promoted that because he was tapping people out. Like, all right, you're a purple belt now. Cole and others like him, there are a few. It's not everyone. Yeah, it's going to grow in the years to come, but it's still not going to be everyone. We can't change that for the whole system, just for these few people. Because they're specifically, this is what they're doing. This is what they chose to do to compete from a young age. And you could have that same situation with adults, you know? You had two adults come in, same age, let's just say 25 years old, and you have one student that's just training to to learn jujitsu, and one that's training to compete. What's going to happen? You're going to have two blue belts, but obviously the one that's training to compete is going to smash the other one. That's just like the nature of the way it is, you know? So what are we going to yeah. do? Change the belts for them too, like, It's always been like that is and it's it's always going to be like that when you're talking about practitioners who want to take it to that level and be professional athletes.
0: Give me your thoughts on belt testing.
1: Yeah, I don't see anything wrong with it. You know, like I think that sometimes you have like uh, this culture that exists in the art. And then people just hold on to it like a sacred cow. And mm. then it's like, they're so into this thing where they criticize anything that is not what, they, uh, what they're what they accustomed to, right? Like I had a situation one time where Master Robson, years ago, when he had moved to Sao Paulo, to kind of incentivize his students over there, because it was a little while from white to blue, and it was a very painful tr- journey. He decided to implement using a green belt at the two-strike mm-hmm. mark. This is the great Robson Moore, one of the greatest life feathers featherways in the history of jujitsu, and it worked for him. Yeah, he was able to retain more students. No one complained about it. Listen, some of his greatest champions went through that system where they got white, green, blue, purple, brown, black. I had a student of mine, Emily. She was uh, going through that where she was a white belt to get a green into blue. So some of her friends they were like, oh, you know, that's. Because uh, we were using that system at the school following Robson's footsteps, right? Following his lead. Mm-hmm. I was using the white, the green, the blue. You know, they were bullying her on the internet. Oh, you you trained at a McDojo. You trained at a McDojo. Yeah, the green belt is supposed to be for juvenile. It's not supposed to be for adult, right? So then she came to me. She was concerned. Oh, Sensei, you know, a professor, they, they were saying this, 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 and that. I said, invite them to the school. Tell them to come over here. Cause I have a student, my my isn't my second black belt. What's my second black belt? My first black belt, Isaac, who went through that system. He was white, green, blue, purple, brown, black. He's a savage. This guy. I told Emily, invite them to the school to find out if if Isaac is mcdojo. If you ask me, bro, it's ignorance. Like just be open minded. Try to understand first why the professor did it. I respect why Robson did it. He had good 100%. intentions, and it worked. And no one in Brazil complained about it. No one from IBJJF complained to Robson about it. No one criticized or condemned him, Salo and all those other greats. No one said anything to him. They understood what Robson was doing and he was doing this in Brazil. And then we were doing here in the US. I did it for a little while and it worked fine. It helped as a motivator for the students. So just think of all the things that we're doing now that like five years ago, everybody was complaining about. And now it's just like the norm, right? People are stuck in this, like this one echo chamber, right? Where it's like, I know Dojo, that doesn't work, or this, this, and that. And, you know, remember everybody was criticizing Gracie Baja about, you know, the franchising and all that. What is everybody right. trying to do now?
0: It's a business. It's a business. People forget that too. That part of this is, it's a business.
1: Yeah. And, it, and, and another thing, this is a hot topic here. I'm going to say this. I find this highly annoying, right? Because I'm a business owner. When you have these people that are be like criticizing or condemning a, a business owner for trying to make money.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And, and
1: it'd be the joke is that they went to college, got a degree, spent all this money on a degree, but you asked them, why did you become a doctor? Oh, because I can make this much money. Why'd you become an engineer? Because they make this much a year. So yeah. your whole intention of going to school was to make money. That was your whole purpose of going, not because you liked to be an engineer, because you were looking for that money, but then now you get out of college, you got that job, you have a nice car, you have a nice house, flat screen TV, and you're going to talk trash and criticize a Jiu Jitsu Academy owner because he sells kimono, because he's trying to make money off of privates, because he's trying to make money. You won't go to work and do overtime without getting your pay, your hour and a half, right? You won't do it if your boss said you had to stay Three more hours. You best believe they're going to fight to get that money. You can do that, though. You could be all about the money and have a nice car and live the life and travel. But another business owner can't do that? You're going to criticize and condemn him for that? Pure
0: ignorance, man. Hard left turn here. Your advice to the master's practitioners, the 40, the 50 plus people out there.
1: People ask me, how old are you? I say 47 years young. That's my advice It's mindset, man. You got to change your mind about that. You're not old. People like 40 old. It's not old. 40 summers. That's a piss in the wind, bro. Mm -hmm. 40 springs, maybe less, 37, because you didn't remember the first three. It's nothing. (laughs) I started in August of 2011, so I had just turned 28. I started training was just to get in shape. I just wanted to lose some weight. It was for hobby and interest. And then naturally I'm a very competitive person, very driven person. So I started kind of getting into, like I had my friends that were encouraging the competition aspect of Jiu Jitsu. They were asking me, why you train so hard? i like, I don't know, I just like it. Like you ever think about competing? So I start to compete naturally driven and competitive. I decided one day to become a, try to become a world champion in Jiu Jitsu. It took me about nine to 10 years before I could get on that podium of the uh, IBJJF Roosterweight Black Belt Adult Division. No one even knew, I was 37 possibly the oldest person ever to place on the adult, on the podium of the adult who's the weight category. And so sometimes I have friends of mine, they'd be like, oh, you know, I'm old. I'm old." I'm like, bro, stop saying that, man. Stop saying that. You old, if you say you old. I mean, no, obviously there's, we, we are older, right? But, you know, you can change a lot by just changing your paradigm. Sure. You know, you can accomplish a lot if you stop yeah. limiting yourself by that. Now... Let's be realistic. Yes, some of us are older and we have injuries and we just don't have that kind of ability. Then just do what you can, but don't limit yourself by thinking like that. Do what you can and do it to the best of your ability. Jiu-Jitsu is amazing that it keeps us young. It keeps us, you know, alive, vital. And so take advantage of all those things that it has to offer and do what you can, you know. If you're just a practitioner, just take your time and be smart. We have like certain cultures. I mentioned this before. There's no rule that says you have to train with everybody in the academy. You don't have to. Pick your roles, brother. Mm -hmm. Pick your roles. Be smart. You know, you don't have to roll with everybody. There's no rule that says you have to do that. Be smart. Pick your roles. If you're rolling with somebody that's going to hurt you, stay away from that person. Just stick with the people you know is going to give you a good role so you don't get hurt. If you're just a hobbyist, there's no reason to, don't let the room, that peer pressure of the room, you know, contaminate your ego. And then you do something dumb to feel like, oh, I can do it and then get hurt. That's very prevalent in our rooms, man. People feel that pressure, you know? Oh, you want to roll with him? You shouldn't roll with him. Yeah, I can do it. And then why not getting hurt? Very true. We got to be smart. We got to change our paradigm. You're not old. You're 40 years young, 45 years young. You're 47. Start responding like that. Start thinking like that. We, need, we do need to be intelligent. We are getting older. We probably don't have the same abilities that we had when we were younger. So just be really intelligent on the mat. Pick your roles. Stick with the people. They're going to help you, not hurt you. And enjoy
0: the process. Okay, Joseph. So where can we get more information about you and everything that you're up to? We're on Instagram, uh,
1: ZCobra underscore BJJ and um everyone reaches me there like i'm doing seminars and privates and i'm posting content there like pretty much daily and if anyone's interested in just following us to learn some cool little techniques or see some really cool visuals you can find us there and obviously we have a bigger account choke lab choke underscore lab where we also post clean jujitsu related content there as well anybody can reach me via dm at any time
0: right and the academy
1: Cutting Edge uh, BJJ. We do have the website. It's really well put together where we have information there as well. CuttingEdgeBJJ.com.
0: All right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening again and give us the whole five-star review and the whole thing. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Thanks so much for listening another time. And Joseph, I really appreciate your time. I I could not thank you enough. Thank you so much. My pleasure,
1: sir. Thank you very much.